Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I titled this message, Growing in Graciousness, not unrelated to my prayer just now. And realizing, too, as I prayed, I'm always aware when I do this, uh, that we are uncomfortable with silence, aren't we? Those, those silent moments there, it's, there's a reason why we call it awkward silence. And yet, um, there is something more than symbolic about our need to come before the Lord and be silent because we need to be totally depended on him, totally yielded to him, totally surrendered to his will, to his timing, his plan for how he will meet every need and so on. And so he's proved in our past that he is exceedingly gracious to us. And part of what we as followers of Jesus and imitators of Christ are called to to do is to grow in graciousness ourselves. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, again, there's one provided for you. You'll have to grab it fast and look on the screen while you're turning there now. But I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We listen attentively to his voice in the scriptures. Hear the word of the Lord. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you now, as always, for your word. We open it believing that it is true and living and powerful and active. And we open it also with expectation that you have something to say to us through it. And you do know every one of us, inside and out, you know our thoughts from afar and our, the words on our mouth before they're even there. And so you know exactly what it is we need to hear from you, to experience from you and of you. And so we open our ears and hearts to receive. Would you speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. It's all yours, Lord. So would you move me out of the way now as always and use my voice as your instrument today in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, some of you have probably been to a hairstylist at some point and shown a picture of the, the sort of style you were interested in. Um, 
I, I, I've heard of such things. I, uh, <laughs> and you probably know that if you, want, if, you want, if you want a hairstyle like mine, it takes years of uh, really consistent, committed effort, a long obedience in the same direction to get it to look like this. But, you, you know, you've, some of you have probably been there and, you, and you've, you've, you've had a picture to say, I want to look something like this. Well, there's a sense in which as we turn to Ephesians chapter four, we begin to get a picture of what we should look a little bit like as followers of Jesus. As I uh, indicated earlier within the first three chapters of Ephesians, we've been overwhelmed and overjoyed by how good and gracious God has been to us. I mean, it is, it is really hard to fathom. In fact, he, he uses that kind of language, right? There's unsearchable riches, immeasurable riches of his grace and language of that sort. He intends uh, to just overwhelm us with how good God has been to us. And so that informs how we are to live as we have received this uh, this overwhelming flow of his grace toward us. It's supposed to affect the way that we live, not only as people who are grateful and impacted by that, but because we imitate Jesus who has been so gracious to us. He's both our giver uh, and the model we are to follow. And so... Paul, with all of that in mind, and if you're just, if you're just joining us today, um, we're, we're obviously going through a series of the book of Ephesians, and um, you could read the first three chapters this afternoon if you wanted to try to catch up, but you could reread it again this evening and tomorrow morning and the days to follow, and you would find uh, the deeper you dig, the more, that you, the more you find there. There's just so rich, full of treasures, but he... But he he, he overwhelms us with this uh, description of how good and gracious God has been. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. I, I, I want to get here in just a couple of minutes really focused on uh, qualities of a gracious person or qualities of, a, of gracious people. That is what it would look like to grow in graciousness. But it's, it's sort of wrapped here. That, that, that's mostly going to come out of verses two and three, but it's wrapped in all six verses of this passage. I'll say, by the way, at the outset, this is uh, verses one through three, I would say, one of my very favorite passages in all of the Bible. One of the most challenging and impactful and, uh, and always fresh. I come back to it and it doesn't say anything different than it did last time I was there. But somehow it, it just challenges me to new places of um, obedience, submission, uh, and freedom in the grace of Christ. But he refers here to our calling not as... A ministry calling. And I've heard some people refer to this passage as such, that he's talking about a calling to, to ministry for those who are in vo vocational ministry. He's really not talking about 
someone's call to ministry or even our call to work in general. The, the King James does use the word vocation here, um, which comes from the Latin word to call, but, it, but it's really not talking about the work that we do, but simply the life that we are called to. It's our calling to come to Christ, our calling to be uh, the people of God, our calling out of darkness and into light, our calling from death to life, our calling from far off to near, from being strangers to being citizens, etc. All of those things that he's outlined and unpacked for us in the earlier chapters were called to be an assembly of God's people. That's the calling of Christ he's speaking of. And to walk in a manner worthy of it does not in any sense mean that we come to deserve it. Okay, this isn't a matter of, okay, he was gracious on the front end, but now you owe him big time. And you're gonna spend the rest of your life paying him back. You can never pay him back. And hopefully one of the things you get a sense of, I know we don't really comprehend it. We can't get our minds all the way around it. But one of the things hopefully you get a sense of is how far beyond our comprehension his love and his grace are. I mean, we can't even measure it, much less pay it back. So it's not a matter of becoming worthy of it. So when we, 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 we might associate uh, that kind of language with, um, you know, some loved one in our life who, who does something kind for us and we say, thank you. And they say, oh, you're worth it. Okay, well, uh, we're not really worth it in this sense. Okay, in other words, we didn't do anything that made us worth it or worthy and we're not going to become worthy in that respect. But, but simply, it is a matter of uh, living a, a life that is befitting of the grace that's been extended to us. That is, uh, as he's been so gracious, gracious to us, we ought to be gracious in our dealings with other people. And we ought to be grateful toward him always. As often as we're reminded of his grace, we ought to have thanksgiving on our lips. And we can never exhaust uh, his worthiness of those songs of thanksgiving and just voices of thanksgiving. But he has in view here all of the grace that's been poured out to us and uh, that he's mentioned in, this, in these preceding chapters. He's been so gracious to you that ought to make you gracious. It ought to make you live differently. Like those who have been, uh, I've used the metaphor in, in times past of, you know, those who are lost at sea and floating adrift in the middle of an ocean and, and a, a, a ship comes along and just rescues you. Not because of any cleverness on your part or anything you did to save yourself, but, but uh, that, that it just, the ship just comes along and rescues you. Now, you will not complain about whatever food they serve you on board, will you? You'll not complain that your pillow is not soft enough or that your blanket is a little too scratchy because it's, it's, it's entirely uh, outside of your doing to have saved yourself. Now, um, you, you can follow the train of thought there, but the picture being that, that's how, that's, that's only a small illustration of the rescue that God uh, initiated on our behalf through Jesus. So as followers of Christ, we should live our lives in a way that corresponds to that grace. 
like a member of a prominent family who might be told something like, you're a Rockefeller and you need to act like it. Or whatever the the name might be, but there's this expectation that because of who you are, it, it demands that you live, you conduct yourself in a certain way. And then we might uh, look at the concluding verses here, or the verses four through six, even three through six, really, that, that uh, draw our attention to the fact that the aim of that, the aim of that worthy walk is unity among the people of God. He is speaking, by the way, you in plural, that is y'all. All of this is, is addressed to y'all. And that y'all, as the people of God, ought to uh, live in this manner, a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, so that you might be unified. He's made us one. You remember uh, Steve's sermon on that um, a few weeks ago, in particular from Ephesians chapter 2. He's made Jew and Gentile one. Where there was hostility, now there is peace. He has one people of God. He's done that. He's granted us that. But there's also something that has to be maintained about that. There is some, there's an effort required on our part to, to continue to live as unified people, as one body of Christ. And it just makes sense. Again, it's fitting that we should do so. Because it goes on to say, again, in verses 4 through 6, we're one body, uh, being made one body by one spirit and one hope, serving one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so on. He's underscoring this fact that we are one, that everything uh, that God has done has been the same for all of his people to make us one people, to dwell together in unity. And that requires us to live in a certain way and to make a certain amount of effort. Again, he has granted us more than we can measure by his grace, but it still demands of us to live in a certain response to that. And so I want to focus today our attention really on verses two and three in particular, where we see four qualities of gracious people. And I've tried to set this up in a way to say, this is what the Christian community ought to look like. And he said it, not me. He said, this is a description of what it looks like to walk in a manner that is befitting of the grace that you've received. And so if we don't understand grace, go back to chapter one and read through chapter three again. And go back to chapter one again and read to chapter three again. But to the extent that we do understand that we ought to live differently because of it as gracious people, Four qualities of gracious people. Number one, humility. Humility. Uh, Christian teachers down through the ages have recognized pride as the, the fountainhead of sin. It's, it's like not even, it's not even really necessarily uh, the, the chief sin. It's just like the father of sins almost. And again, this has been the, uh, really... Uh, thinkers down through the, the century have, have recognized this. Just the fountainhead of sin, humility as the chief virtue. Those are uh, really sort of opposites of each other, pride 
and humility. John Stott said, pride is your greatest enemy, humility is your greatest friend. And it's really a summation of that, uh, that very truth, that, that pride is really uh, the queen of sins. And humility, the chief of virtues. I love the choice of words in the New King, King James Version, actually in a couple of places in this passage. But it uses the word lowliness. And again, because that, that conveys something different, we don't use that word very often, which is why it kind of stands out, but it communicates uh, something I think very helpful here. Because the word that's translated humility really does mean having a low opinion of yourself. And not like, not, not in a self uh, sort of deprecating way, where you go, oh, I'm no good. Nobody likes me and nobody should. I'll never amount to anything you know, and that kind of thing. It's not self-loathing. That is not humility, and it's not having a low opinion of yourself in that way. It's really a low opinion in contrast to the elevated opinion of ourselves that most of us have, which is what pride is, right? The, the, to have a, an, an exalted opinion of ourselves that really doesn't match reality. Because there's a part of us and it's a part of all of us that in some way or some ways we think of ourselves as better than other people. Smarter, better looking, more talented, more spiritual, just deserving of better Again, you, you know there are more ways than I could even name, but it is, it is common to man to in some ways have an elevated opinion of ourselves and humility is really a low opinion in relation to that. And it's probably um, described in a helpful way in Philippians chapter two, verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit or vain conceit, as it's translated in other translations. But in humility, count others more significant to, uh, than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, I don't know how well that matches with the American way, but I know plenty of us Americans don't like that way. We would rather say in humility, count others as almost as good as yourself. Some even as good. Consider others more significant than yourselves. To the person who wants to become more humble, C.S. Lewis said the first step is to realize that one is proud. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. <laughs> As you've, you've, you've heard the, the sort of, I mean, again, sort of humorous twist on that, but um, if you think you're humble, you are certainly not. Right? That's, the, that's the first sign that you're not, is if you think that you are. That's the sort of irony of it. But Again, there are a number of ways 
that our lack of humility makes itself, well, I was going to say makes itself known. Uh, Our problem much of the time is we don't see it, even though it's glaring, and it might be glaringly obvious to other people. We might not necessarily see it ourselves, but it comes in all kinds of forms. People who, who think they are better uh, in terms of their uh, talent, appearance, uh, the, the, what they deserve from other people. Uh, those who need to get the upper hand or always have the last word. People who need to get credit for whatever the achievement was. And if they're, if they're, if they're not, if they don't receive credit, then they're offended by that. Uh, it, uh, again, it, one of perhaps the most sinister forms of it is spiritual pride. I read another uh, C.S. Lewis quote here, and I won't remember it exactly, but he, he basically said, uh, you know, pride was the way that the devil became the devil, essentially, right? That's what made the devil the devil. And, and from that perspective, the, the, the reason I say spiritual pride is some of the most sinister is because the person who, th- who thinks he is becoming more godly is actually becoming more like the devil if he's growing in spiritual pride. Do you understand what I'm trying to communicate that by that? That is, as a person, you know, reads more, uh, uh, learns more of the Bible, but it is making them more puffed up and arrogant, they're actually becoming more like the devil than they are like Jesus. That's alarming, isn't it? And maybe, uh, maybe you've had experience with that personally, or maybe you've been on the receiving end of that, but it is, uh, it is dangerous both to the individual and destructive to the body of Christ. Maybe on the, on the receiving end of that, you have, you have needed comfort and just empathy, uh, the love of Jesus demonstrated by the people of God around you during a hard time, and somebody came along and told you, the reason why that's happening to you, that bad thing is happening to you, it's the reason you're still sick, it's the reason you had a miscarriage, it's the reason uh, you, you um, lost your job or your business or whatever, it's something that you did wrong, you didn't pray right, you weren't being obedient in the right way to God, and at the very time you needed comfort, uh, you know, you, you got run into the ground and, and discouraged, beyond discouragement. I won't ask for anybody to say amen because it's happened to you, but I know there are people here for whom it has. You know what I'm talking about. And again, the, the, the sinister part of that is it, it is most prevalent among people who think they are the most spiritual. They can talk all the talk. They have all the language. They got all the answers, or so they think. Now, I'm leaning into that one for a reason, and now I'm going to get off of it, but the, but the point is the pride manifests itself in all kinds of ways, and those are diagnostics for us. 
Those are just diagnostics for us. To, to, to reveal it so that we can lean into the grace of God and let him deal with it. And that is to deal with our pride and to make us more humble. So we need to desire humility. We need to pursue humility. We need to practice humility. And again, even lean in to the grace of God uh, to help make us more humble. Sometimes his grace feels like judgment. And I'm going to explain uh, what I mean by that in just a second. But, but see, the truth is, some of us might like to be more humble, but few of us want to become more humble. Because becoming more humble is painful. Especially depending on how much pride you have. In this case, I am speaking from experience. I wouldn't suggest I'm humble, but I'm suggesting I've had plenty of opportunity to be made humble by God. And the pride revealing itself in all kinds of ways. It's painful. And so, so many of us like the idea of being humble. Few of us would really like to become humble. But he wants, God wants you to grow in humility more than he wants you to have your next achievement, trophy, accolade, or whatever, whatever it might be that would fuel your pride. He wants more for you to become humble than he does for you to become exalted. We, that is a guarantee. There's no question that that is true um, because that would make you look more like Jesus and that's his desire for us. And very often, the rough and jagged edges of our pride need to be filed down by the grinding stone of God's sanctifying grace. The rough and jagged edges of our pride need to be filed down. Now, there's nothing that sounds sweet and comforting about that, does it? And that's why I say none of, we, would like, we like the idea of being humble, but we don't necessarily like the idea of becoming that because that requires the rough and jagged edges of our pride to be filed down, ground away by the grace of God. He's making us something more beautiful in the end. Humility is maybe not always, but often formed through failures, not victories, through embarrassing situations, things that you, you would never want to happen, and if it did happen, you would never want it to be known. It's just embarrassing to you. There's situations of being wrongly accused, misunderstood, and other people around don't know the truth or don't know the difference, and you want so bad for people to know. See, th those are the kind of situations in life that God may use to produce humility in us. And we don't really go seeking those. We don't go creating those for sure. But when they come along, the invitation for us is to cooperate with God's grace 
that he might grow us in humility and thereby grow us in graciousness. The question we might ask ourselves in that regard is, how much do I really want to be shaped into the likeness of Jesus? How much do you really want that? And is it willing, is it, is it worth paying the cost, even if the cost is having your pride exposed to you and then ground down by some real hardships that he intends for your good in the end? Well, that's the number one, and that's a long number one, by the way, and I did that because, on purpose because it is really the chief virtue. I've said, suggested before, if, if you and I wanted to grow in Christ-likeness, and we could only pick one word, you know, uh, like uh, Port City Church does, many of you are familiar with, one, the one word for the year, that's sort of the, in, in place of a, uh, a New Year's resolution to encourage people to choose one, one word that, you know, God's going to, uh, they're inviting God to work on, or they sense that God wants to work on them over the course of the year. I've suggested before, if you don't have any, if you can't think of any other word, Every year, for the rest of your life, you could pick humility, and he will do good things to it. Because uh, if we were going to pick one characteristic to desire and to pursue and to practice that will form us more into the likeness of Jesus, it would be humility. The second is gentleness. These are characteristic. This is how we ought to walk as Christians. This is a walk that's worthy, that's befitting of the grace we've received. Humility and gentleness. Gentleness means mild, even-tempered, and able to moderate your passions. I, I pulled that definition out of a uh, New Testament resource. Able to moderate your passions. It's also translated in uh, some other places even in the New Testament in this translation of the Bible. It's also translated meekness. In classical Greek, this word meant power under control. Uh, the way a horse's strength is brought under control when it's trained and bridled. That was, that, that was the picture and it was used uh, in that context. Power brought under control, which means gentleness and meekness does not mean weakness. I thought uh, R.C. Sproul offered a helpful illustration of this, talking about that in his years of Christian teaching ministry, he conducted many marriage conferences, and he would ask women there what virtues they most wanted to find in a man. It seems like a little bit of a dangerous question at a marriage conference, but hey, he, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> I thought that might be a better question at a women's conference is what I thought would seem safer. But he would ask the women what virtues they most wanted to find in a man, and consistently there were three qualities that sort of always made the list and maybe the top of the list. Strength, confidence, and tenderness. Strength, confidence, and tenderness. And he pointed out that each of those has a way of keeping the others in balance. A strong man that has no tender, uh, tenderness 
um, is likely a dangerous man. I mean, particularly in a marriage. A tender man who has no strength is uh, perhaps prone to weakness who, who is not able to be strong at the time when strength is required. But the two of those sort of hold each other in tension. That is, tenderness did not imply weakness. It just, uh, it just implied restraint to the strength, right? And strength did not imply domineering or abuse. But he uses that as an illustration to say, here's what gentleness looks like in the life of a Christian. It is not weakness. But it is power brought under control. And again, when you think of the picture of the strength of a horse, um, horses can be just some of the most gentle, uh, right, docile-seeming animals. I mean, they're, they're, they're great for kids, for example, but it's like in the presence of a really strong horse, you are, you, you are aware both of its gentleness and its incredible strength, right? That's the picture of gentleness of a Christian, able to moderate your passions, Number three is patience. Again, I really love the choice of words that the New King James Version uses. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. We don't use that word anymore, and again, it really just means patience. But I love the connotation because sometimes that's what it feels like to be patient with certain people, doesn't it? Long-suffering. Oh, goodness, you know. Long, that's why I always love that word, long-suffering. Oh, my word. And again, I'd like to point out, especially to visitors, none of those people go here to this church, but you've maybe met them other places. But again, if we were looking at definitions from the uh, the Greek word translated patience there, uh, one that I saw says the prolonged restraint of anger or agitation. The, the patience, the long restraint of anger or agitation. The opposite of long suffering or patience would be a hair triggered anger or emotion. In, in, in order to, again, appreciate what's being communicated there. Where, where, where somebody uh, who is patient can restrain their anger or agitation for a prolonged period of time, the opposite of that would be one who just has hair-triggered anger or emotions. And again, you know, you know that kind of personality. Um, there are so many landmines that you might step on at any given time. You found some of them and you avoid those. But there are so many of them out there that you can step on a new one. You never saw it coming. And all of a sudden, I mean, the whole situation is an explosive mess. Because the person has no restraint on their anger or emotions. Hair triggered. Family, friends, and acquaintances may look for ways to limit interaction with that person 
or avoid them altogether. Because again, they don't know what's going to trigger the next outburst. They just are pretty sure there's going to be one. And so their relationship becomes governed by the sort of navigation uh, around all of these landmines. Now, I, again, I, I offer that because part of what we're exhorted to be and to become is patient, long-suffering people. It is fitting for a, a believer to be patient as God has been patient with us and as God still is patient with us. It doesn't mean that there is uh, no wrath in God, right? There is. He is perfectly holy and righteous and his judgment will be completely demonstrated uh, in the end. And his chastisement is demonstrated sometimes in the now. He is not without wrath, but it does say in the scriptures he is slow to anger. And so becoming somebody like that who is long-suffering, is increasingly patient, involves continuing to choose not to avenge yourself even when it's in your power to do so. Now that doesn't mean, again, it's, it needs to be qualified because it doesn't mean uh, continuing to overlook a matter indefinitely. This is one of the things um, that can become a struggle for believers that they think being humble and gentle and patient means being nice and never never calling out injustice as injustice. When you've been wronged, you just, you just feel like you have to allow it, that you get trampled on one time after another. It doesn't mean tolerating abuse or getting walked on, but it does mean becoming a person who rather than being quick to anger and emotional outbursts and so forth, restrains that because I know myself well enough. Do you understand the connection between that? That those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, those who were enemies of God, those who were far off and strangers and aliens and all of those kinds of things, we were the very person who needed the patience of other people and of God himself, and we received it lavishly. And so how, how ought we to live? Patiently. We ought to become increasingly patient in our dealings with other people. And then finally, number four, forbearance. He says, bearing with one another in love. And he goes on, this is all about endeavoring to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity requires effort. And I have said before, I'm so glad it says that in the Bible. Because I know it does for me. It seems, you know, uh, as I say from time to time, in this fallen world, things never fall together. They always fall apart. Left to themselves, things never fall together. 
they always fall apart. And when it comes to unity, even unity within the body of Christ, if you leave it unattended, it'll fall apart, not fall together. It requires effort to maintain it. And that's part of what we're exhorted to here. But again, the fourth quality leading to that is forbearance. It's closely related to patience. But it really means in enduring something unpleasant or difficult. Every time something unpleasant happens to you, everybody else doesn't need to know. Right? It doesn't need to be announced to the world so you can be vindicated. Doesn't need to go on social media just so people express their sympathy and how sorry they are for you and how you were right and that mean person shouldn't have done that or said that or whatever the case may be. Enduring something unpleasant or difficult. And in this case, what he's speaking to is the unpleasant and difficult things are people. They're church people. Yeah, we're special kind of people, you know? Been around one another long enough, you know. Church people are special kind of people. Right? I didn't hear near enough amens on that, but it's okay. It's all, you look, the opportunity's already passed. You watch it later on and say it on, you know, watch it on YouTube and, and put the amen there where it belongs. But, but, but just enduring unpleasant or difficult people. Colossians 3 really, uh, in, in a lot of ways, mirrors um, Ephesians 4. You could say Colossians 3 and 4 mirror in some ways Ephesians 4 through 6. He speaks to really similar themes. But in Colossians 3, he also mentions this word forbearance. In verse 13, he says... Bearing with one another, and he's listed a whole, uh, again, a whole list of things. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now again, let's, let's set a little bit of sort of boundaries on that, because we know from other places in the scripture where we're told that offenses uh, against one another within the body of Christ need to be confronted by the individual and then by others and then, and then in some cases by the whole church when there's been persistent sin and, uh, and, and, and it needs to be brought before the whole congregation uh, even as a matter of church discipline in some cases. So he's not speaking of that sort of thing but there are lots of fences that can just be forgiven. There are lots of things that people do that they ought not to do or things that people fail to do that they said they were going to do and so on and so forth. Lots of them that can just be forgiven. And that's part of what forbearance requires of us. Bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving one another as the Lord's forgiven you so you also must forgive. Now, I don't know what in here, maybe the Holy Spirit has 
whispered to your heart or, or highlighted in your own understanding about yourself just as we're going through this message. Surely there is something, and if not in this message, just in the passage alone. So again, you can go back and read it in your quiet moments, and I promise you there's something he can show you there uh, that's exposed and that needs to be grown in you, growing in graciousness. But the one thing I did want to say also in conclusion here is that I alluded to this at the outset when we, when we had a prayer of confession. It, this, is, this is never revealed for our condemnation. You might say, as a believer, the diagnosis of your sin is never terminal. And it, you know, God, God never says to the believer, uh, I've got bad news and then bad news. You know, you're a sinner, and that's the end of the story. But he reveals that, that we might confess that and be forgiven and then be made more holy. That is the lifelong process of growing in holiness and growing in the likeness of Jesus. So that is to say, hopefully he has and will reveal ways in which you and I need to grow in graciousness. You are not going to get the profile of this from watching John Wayne movies, I'll warn you. Or, or a Terminator, you know, Schwarzenegger or whatever. I mean, the sort of the profile of the strong man who's a hero to us in many ways. And, and, and again, in the right place, uh, deserve to be, I suppose. That's another, maybe another whole line of thought. But, but he has a profile that he wants to shape us into. And we are not yet that. But as people who have received abundant, immeasurable grace, we ought to be always growing in graciousness, graciousness in our dealings with other people. So how today uh, does he want to do that in your life to make you more humble, more gentle, more patient, more forbearing, or all of the above. Let him speak and let him guide. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we can only thank you for your great grace toward us. And thank you, Lord, for a clear picture of what we are to become. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you for this church that in so many ways models these characteristics. I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray you'd do so more and more. You know all of our needs, we pray you would speak to those even now that we might respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.